0: Why death? Death is the part of our lives we are so very certain about, yet we fear the most. Hiding deep within anxiety, which is a current epidemic, lies the fear of death, ours or our loved ones. But what if I told you that people who embrace death and talk about it openly have a more full-spectrum life experience? We know it isn't your fault we've been programmed to stuff our conversations and feelings surrounding end of life. By listening to other stories, you get invaluable practice. Our listeners feel more informed about what to do when they find themselves negotiating that inevitable terrain. Most of all, our listeners feel a personal expansion after sitting with someone's tender and fascinating story. That's why we say, listening will make you a better human promise. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for joining us for an episode of the Death Dialogues Project podcast. I'm your host for today, Kate Burns. My sincere hope is that no matter the reason you're tuning in, you will find something with which to relate and connect. But most importantly, I hope something you hear today brings you peace. Thanks for being with us. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Kate Burns, on the Death Dialogues Project podcast. Our episode today dives deep into a topic of which I was a complete skeptic, mediumship. Dr. Amy Robbins is a clinical psychologist in Chicago who also has the ability to connect with those who have died. In this episode, she shares the story of losing her aunt at the age of 18 and being a few years removed from that loss when she experienced her first encounter. Dr. Amy answered a lot of my questions around her ability and what it means for the grieving process. This is one you're not going to want to miss. Thanks for being here. Okay, tonight we have on the podcast, Dr. Amy Robbins. Amy, how are you doing tonight?
2: I'm doing great, Kate. Thank you.
1: Absolutely. I'm so excited to have you here on the podcast tonight. You know, I was looking back through my notes and it was October the last time we talked. And so these last couple months have gone so fast, but I've been so excited to um, chat with you. So if you can first let our listeners know where you are in the world. And then, if you want to just jump into sharing your story of grief and loss,
2: we can just chat from there. Sure. I am in Chicago. I am cold. Uh, it has gotten very cold here, but it is supposed to warm up. Um, so, yeah. And I am apologized in advance. And if I'm a little hoarse, because the cold has me- means dry air. Um, Absolutely.
1: I'm in Kansas. So, so a I understand. Little-
2: Okay. Okay. So it's probably not quite as cold there yet, but not quite creeping in that direction. Mm-hmm. So a little bit about my story. Uh, when I was 18 years old, I lost my aunt. Uh, she was like a second mother to me. She had juvenile onset diabetes and was waiting for a kidney and pancreas transplant. While she was on the list as she was coming up to be you know, closer to having the opportunity to have a transplant. They did some tests to make sure that her body would have been strong enough to withstand the transplant. And when they did that, they found out that she had had several heart attacks in the weeks in the weeks prior. So they decided they were going to go in and, and try to repair her heart. And unfortunately, she died on the table. Uh, I was 18 years old at the time. I had I was a freshman in college. It was really my first experience with a a, a close loss. I had lost a great-grandmother. I had actually sadly lost a couple of friends young, which had thrown me for a loop. But this was really the the closest familial loss that really felt not kind of in the order that things are supposed to be. She was 48 at the time when she died, which feels crazy to me now as I am mid 40s and you start to have the perspective of what that age actually really means in terms of your life. Uh, I came home for just a couple of days. I'm Jewish. So I came home for the shiva, went right back to school and sort of thought I was jumping back into living my life. However, found myself really plagued by a tremendous amount of anxiety. I had attributed a lot of her life to how my life was supposed to be. She was the oldest of three kids. She had a younger sister and brother. I was also the oldest of three kids. I had a younger sister and brother. She had gone through a pretty traumatic divorce, which led to sort of her health demise ultimately. I mean, she was always sick. She had been sick since the age of 10. But I think that the divorce and the stress of the divorce, and the, at the time she was a stay-at-home mom, she ended up needing to go back to work. The conditions in which she had to go back to work and were not great, given her health complications, and so everything just sort of spiraled downward from that. So I was pretty hell bent on never ending up like her, and what that meant was I was never going to give up my career. I was always going to work. I was never going to, you know, just throw everything into my kids because I didn't want to have to rely on someone else to support me. And that piece was the piece that really made me super anxious because as it came time for me to get jobs and things like that and I was getting rejected and wasn't getting jobs, the anxiety started to increase because the impact of her grief on my life had been so profound and I hadn't I, I didn't make these connections till years later. I was in therapy at the time. I started therapy the summer after her death and went in and out of therapy. You know, when I was back in school, I was out of therapy, but when I would come home from the summer, I would go back into therapy. Just really trying to work through this loss, which was a tremendous loss for me because she was like a second mother to me. She was very much, particularly because she was going through such a difficult time around her divorce, she was an. Our house a lot, this was my mom 's older sister, her best friend. They did everything together, so it was traumatic to watch my mom grieve the loss of her sister and It really impacted me in in the most profound ways and I ended up that summer getting a job it was, I had just finished undergrad and I got a job uh, selling radio airtime of all things was very unhappy but Found this and felt this intense pressure that I really needed to make sure that I was going to be able to support myself. And I ended up quitting that job because I was very unhappy. I was pretty depressed at the time. Uh, Went back to waiting tables, which I was always really good at. And it was a great way to make fast money. And decided at that point to explore the possibility of going back to graduate school. Uh, Again, because I think her death. And her life so profoundly shaped all the decisions I was making. And at that point, I think it was more unconscious. Now, as I've years later, I mean, this was 20-something years ago, I've really come to understand the meaning of her death and how I made sense of it. But at the time, I was just sort of walking through life pretty unhappy. Uh, I ended up going back to grad school in clinical psychology. And about two years into her, into grad school, I had what I now know was a pretty profound spiritual transformative experience. So I don't know if you want me to pause because I know we talked a little about this before, but if you had any questions about like just the grief stuff as it relates to
0: her.
1: Yeah. You know, the the question that comes to mind, I'm always curious about how People's um, families deal with grief and how they include the children. And even though you you were eighteen and technically not a child anymore, um, you know, at eighteen, like when something like that hits, uh, you deal with it so much differently than you do as an adult usually. And so I'm wondering how your family dealt with that grief and whether or not you felt included, or maybe um, a better way to ask is, did they? Did they, were they open to your own grief or did you all have to grieve pretty privately?
2: You know, because I was in college at the time and I was a freshman, I I just went right back. So I don't really remember what other people's grieving processes were. I mean, I know my mom obviously struggled for a period. I mean, for more than a period, she still, you know, just last week talked about how much she still misses her sister. And of course she does. But I think because I was like in that, like just launching phase of life, I thought I would just get back to my life. And, and the impact of it was really a, almost like a slow rollout. Like I, I think I internalized a lot of it and didn't really realize how much it had impacted me. Uh, and I didn't, I mean, I remember coming home and seeing my mom and hugging my mom and my mom feeling like so skinny, like, like I could feel the bones on her body. And I knew we are a family that when we get anxious, we don't eat. You know, some people get anxious and they eat, we get anxious and we don't eat. And so I knew that that was a result of just what was supposed to be in their minds, a routine surgery. And she didn't survive it. My grandfather was also a, a pediatrician, and so it was layered with with the, and my uncle's an orthopedic surgeon. So there was the layers of sort of physicians who couldn't do anything, right? They couldn't do more to help her, and in a lot of ways, you know, part of the grieving process was that I knew my grandfather blamed himself for a lot of it because when my how how she ended up with juvenile diabetes was when she was. 10 years old or maybe a little earlier than that she had her tonsils radiated which was the treatment for which was the treatment for tonsillitis in that day in that day and time and she ended up as a result of the radiation having an autoimmune disease that led to the diabetes so he really blamed himself for that and i remember at the at her funeral that be, like you could just his grief was so palpable because he felt like it was his fault and he should have been able to do- have done something to have saved her or who to have stopped this from happening. And, and I know that, you know, watching my grandparents grieve actually was quite a beautiful thing because over the course of their lives, I mean, my grandparents just passed away uh, five years ago. So they lived quite a long time without their child. And they were, for me, again, a lot of this is now I can see it this way, but they were really a model for grieving because they went on to live quite a beautiful life. And, and while the loss of their daughter was always very present for them, They showed how you can go on and how you can live and how you can appreciate everything that there is in life, even in the face of such tremendous loss, the loss of a child. And they just showed all of us, I think, all of their, there were, there were eight grandchildren, two, three, eight grandchildren. They went on to have, I think they had 10 great-grandchildren before they passed away and really made life about living and i think it was that was a beautiful testament to see how you can live alongside grief not not that grief ever goes away cuz it doesn't but that you can still live a life that's really beautiful and meaningful and you can appreciate the sunrises and the sunsets and we used to joke they used to drive to Florida every year well into their 80s and maybe even early 90s, which scared us. And they would call <laughs> us and like marvel at like the simplest things. Like they'd be like, There's these amazing restaurants. You just like pull over on the side of the road and you can eat anywhere. And it was like the simplicity to which they appreciated such simple life experiences really some of it was their time but I also think some of it was like they knew how fragile life can be and how quickly it can be gone and how quickly it can be turned upside down and they were not going to let that define them that must
0: have
1: been such an amazing thing for you and the rest of their grandchildren to watch and you know I know that when my mom died i I felt like I couldn't go on. Um, I felt like that grief was just suffocating me. And there was one night in particular where, though I wasn't suicidal by any means, I, I just laid on the bed sobbing and told my husband, I can't keep going like this. And that was mm-hmm, over mm-hmm. my mom. Now, I, I don't want to like compare, you know, death or grief or whatever. But you know, at the loss of a parent versus the loss of a child. I just, I mean, the the fact that they could go, your grandparents could go on to show their grandchildren and their their other surviving children that you can mm-hmm. go on and appreciate those things. What an amazing thing for for you all to be able to mm-hmm. see.
2: That's incredible. Yeah, it really, it really was such a gift. They were incredible, incredible human beings. I mean, they were just, they just got it. They, they understood what life was about, uh, and it, it was a gift to be their grandchildren. I think we would all, all eight of us, would say that that is true.
1: Yeah, they sound like wonderful people. Um, do you think that? And of course, I I know that you maybe you don't want to speak for them or maybe you can't speak for them. But I'm wondering if you saw a shift in them to appreciating more of those little things um, after the death of their daughter.
2: You know, I, I don't know, because I mean, I'm sure that there was. But again, I think I was in such a transitional phase. I was going from being a child to being an adult. And so for me, I don't know if it's just that I came to really appreciate as I got older and had really the joy of having grandparents well into, not well, but into their early 90s and me being well into adulthood and launched and having a family of my own, that I could look back and then understand what that really meant. I'm not sure going through it at the time I could really see And also, Mm -hmm. I was gone for four years while they were going through that grieving process. So I I don't know what it it looked like to my siblings who are younger to live in the house when my mom was grieving the loss of her sister. That would actually be an interesting question. We've never really talked about it all that much.
1: Hmm. Well, it's always interesting to know kind of how families deal with things and as, you know, as, as parents, you know, I remember thinking that I, how am I supposed to be a mom without my mom? And it's, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I think I've only talked to one other, one person on here who lost a child. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a definitely an interesting thing to explore because parenting without your parent or a mate, I guess a main parent is is just incredibly hard for a little while. So, um, so yeah. So, okay. So I want to, to kind of fast forward then you started talking about two Mm -hmm. years into grad school, you had kind of a spiritual thing happen. Tell us about that.
2: Sure. So my, my cousin, actually, my, my aunt's son, who is like a brother to me, was getting, getting married. And Again, this was probably the really first big life event that she wasn't at. Um, I mean, maybe there was like a bar about mitzvah, but like this would have been, right, her, I mean, this was her son, and this would have been her dream come true to see her child get married. She actually had two children. One was adopted uh, because of the health issues, and so this was her first born biological son. Um we the wedding was was going to be in Cincinnati and my entire family was going obviously big celebration and a couple weeks before the wedding I had what I now know was what I now believe I sh- and and I know it to be true this is my truth was a visitation. Uh, My aunt came to me. It was early in the morning. Some would say I was dreaming. I don't believe that's what it was. It feels very different. I've since learned visitations and dreams feel quite different. And my aunt very clearly came to me and there was an image sort of in my mind's eye of my mom. In my mind's eye, sorry, not my mom's eye. In my mind's eye, my mom was standing in our kitchen sink in our home where I grew up. And she was crying and she was loading the dishwasher. And she, my aunt, looked at me and said, Tell your mom I'm going to be there. Don't tell her she doesn't need to be sad. I'm going to be at the wedding. And then there was another visualization that I also saw, which was my uncle. And he was pushing my cousin, who was much younger my cousin was five when my aunt passed away and said, "Uh, Please tell Uncle Richie that I hear him when he talks to me and I know when he's out running and talking to me, let him know I hear him. So I wake up from this dream and I'm, I'm kind of panicked because it felt so real to me. And I remember at the moment I kind of woke up from it, my dog starts barking incessantly. And it was early. It was probably at six in the morning or something. And I said to my husband, that was so weird. I feel like Linda was just here. And he kind of looked at me like I was crazy. And I called my mom and I said, mom, I had the weirdest dream. Because that's all I knew how to label it as at the time. Aunt Linda came to me last night. She was standing at the, you were standing at the kitchen Think loading the dishwasher, and she wanted me to tell you, Don't be sad. She's going to be there. She's going to be at the wedding. You don't have to be upset about it. And my mom burst into tears and she said, I was standing at my kitchen in my kitchen last night doing the dishes, loading the dishwasher, and I said out loud, Linda, I can't believe you're not going to be there. I can't believe you're not going to be at this wedding. And at that moment, you know, the the hairs on my arm stood up and she said, call Uncle Richie and tell him the rest of it. And I called him and my, this is my uncle who's an orthopedic surgeon. So not a believer in anything outside of the material realm of what you can see. And I he said I told him and he said, every time I talk to Linda, I talk to her when I'm outside walking or running that's my time when i connect with her and so at this point i was i was pretty yeah floored went to gr- school at the time had a professor who was into who was very very grounded in traditional psychoanalytic and psychodynamic psychotherapy which is the therapy that sort of came out of freud but also very spiritual and i told her what had happened and she said you need, to, you need to figure this out. You need to work on this. You need to develop this. I think you're able to access things that other people can't access. And I was like, eh, whatever. Like, I just sort of dismissed it. We go to the wedding. She did say to me, in order to connect with spirit, and this might sound a little bit out there for some of your listeners, uh, which I can totally appreciate because that's how it felt for me at the time. You really need to talk. You need to continue the conversation because that is the communication. It's just like a normal communication. So I asked my aunt for some signs. I asked her if she would. She loved Neil Diamond. That was like her favorite. I said, please, I was very specific. I said, please, when we get to the wedding, will you play a Neil Diamond song for us? My mom got in the car to pick up my sister from the airport when she was in Cincinnati. And immediately, as soon as she got in the car, Neil Diamond song came on. Wow. And so this started to pique my curiosity around what hap- what actually happens when we die. Um, and then a couple years went by and nothing happened. Uh, and then my grandfather passed away. And I had a very similar experience where he came to me with messages for a cousin that was very clear. I went back to this professor of mine and I told her again, this happened. And she said, I really think you need to talk to someone about this. And then I again put it out of my mind and went on living my life. Another few years, I started my practice. And suddenly it started happening with patients' loved ones. And I was just blown open. And really took some serious time trying to figure out what to do with all of this, how to integrate all of this, how to make sense of what happened to me in the face of loss and grief and pain and suffering and sadness that happens with grief, and how how to negotiate these two, what felt like at the time, very different worlds. I've now come to understand it from a very different lens, but then it was it was mind-blowing to me what I was experiencing, and as a result of that experience and those experiences of connecting with my aunt, connecting with my grandfather, connecting with patients, loved ones who had passed, my own anxiety started to decrease, and I realized that a lot of my anxiety had been driven. By my own fear of death and dying.
1: That is, I think, a, a really profound thing that a lot of your anxiety was kind of perpetuated by that fear of death and dying. Um, you know, I think that's something that so many people can relate to. And what a cool thing that you have this ability that has kind of helped bring that anxiety down for you. Why do you think your anxiety has come down a little bit about it since recognizing this, this thing that you have?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I think that there's so many people out there and there's actually an amazing author, Irving Yalom, who writes, he's written a ton of books about therapy, but in one of his books, he talks about if you never address the issue of death and therapy, then it's actually not a real treatment. And I think our own sort of existential uh, crises is often so much at the core of what we struggle with, right? I mean, even look at the times today, and I don't want to politicize or, you know, anything, but we have gotten to a place where death is, is staring us right in the face, I mean, literally. And the fear around death is paralyzing for people. And I think for me it was such a gift to be able to see that death is not a final stop on the on the path. It's it's part of it is it is part of a soul's journey to growth and it is the death of a physical body but perhaps there's more and and that's not to take away from the grief because it doesn't i've i've walked beside many patients who now know this about me and we can talk about how they know this about me in just a few minutes but uh and and the grief is very much there this belief system and i want to make this very clear this belief system does not override or allow you to bypass the grief because grief is a human experience that we have to have and we have to feel that pain and we have to walk and move through that because we're human but this perspective has totally shifted how I see the world and how I trust the world and how I believe that we are bigger than just our human body. And there's so much more to life. And when you can lean into that a little bit, and at first it might be really uncomfortable for people. And this is not about religion. Like this is, this is very separate for me that you can begin to, at least for me, I was able to begin to let go of a lot and really use this amazing gift that I had been given, this spiritually transformative experience, to redefine how I was going to think about and how I was going to live my life. And I actually ended up realizing that I had had visits from my aunt before this one that felt so profound to me. And I, I don't know about you, but when I have a dream, I can barely remember it. Excuse me, when I wake up in the morning, these visits are as clear to me now as they were the day that they happened.
1: So I have, I know you You and I talked a little bit about, you know, my experience with um, people who say they have this ability. Um, and just a little bit for our listeners, um, my experience has not been good. And it's only been with mm-hmm. one person. Um, and, you know, they <laughs> it was very, very clear that this person looked at my sister's Facebook page and was just kind of um, spitting that kind of information out back back out at us. And so, you know, for me, I I don't have any religious in religion in my background. I've you know, really never been to church except for when I dated somebody in high school and his parents made me go with him. Um, you know, it's, I have a very um, kind of a, a finality to my belief belief system that, you know, at first prior to my mom dying, I kind of thought, well, like my loved ones are always, they surround me, you know, just kind of that very loose idea that they're kind of always with you. Um and it wasn't until after my mom died that I thought there's no way she can be watching this happen and be okay. I Meaning this being my grief, my sister's grief watching what we went through mm. with her sudden death. I thought god that would be more like a hell than a heaven. Um if you if you believe in heaven and hell and things like that, I thought there's no way like that would, that would be cruel to the person who died to have to watch their their people who they left behind go through this horribly emotional, sad, devastating thing. And so that's when I decided, you know, this was probably two, three months after my mom died, I decided, no, what I believe now is it's lights out. It's just like it was before you were born. You, you are nothing. Your consciousness goes away. There's nothing. And so um, that's kind of what I believed. All the way up and down until maybe even this conversation. Um, and so i'm I'm wondering if you can just kind of speak to our listeners to me, because it is it's very interesting for for me to hear this kind of information coming from someone because the majority of my experience has been, you know, either listening to people on podcasts or on a TV show or, you know, the one negative experience that I had with, um, a person who identified themselves as a median and then was clearly just, it was a money grab. Um, can you talk about Mm -hmm. just kind of all of the things that come with this skepticism that people have and, and I have a million questions, but I'll leave it at that. And and we can just kind Mm -hmm. of go from there.
2: Yeah, and I totally get the skepticism. I was a skeptic, and honestly, I'm still skeptical. Uh, I'm always skeptical of mediums. I think, so I ended up, after this started happening more frequently, particularly with patients, loved ones, where it felt a little bit intrusive to me, and that wasn't, I now had the sort of this outside information coming in. I, I couldn't really share it with patients because I think that's not why they were coming to me. Uh, and I was at a loss as to what to do about it. And I spent a couple years working with a medium, studying, learning, trying to understand, practicing, uh, doing readings. I did what I called my my spiritual internship and did readings for friends for what was supposed to be a month. It turned out to be three. I probably did I don't know thirty to forty readings at the time. And what I where I came out in all of this was that could I do it? Yes. Could I be sort of what we what what people in the medium world call hits um or significant hits, which is like that's accurate. Um, there's also like evidential mediumship where you give like really concrete evidence, not something you can find on Facebook. I'll give you an example. I was doing a reading with a friend uh, with a friend who I didn't know very well at the time. And her father-in-law came through again, this was someone I didn't know very well. And what I said to him was your father-in-law is showing me a a college ring, you know, like a college blue stone, you know, those old college rings. Mm -hmm. And this was like in the midst of other stuff that I had, had shared with her and she went home and she told her husband and they sort of laughed because her her dad her father-in-law his father didn't wear jewelry didn't like jewelry never wore jewelry would never have had a ring like that so they didn't share this with me sure enough they he goes home for the weekend i think it was like around thanksgiving time he goes home for the weekend and comes back and i'm sorry he goes home for the weekend and he walks in the house and his mom says to him We'll call him John. John, uh, I just found this ring of your dad's, and I feel like he would want you to have it. And it was exactly the ring that I had described to him. And so that is evidence, right? Like that we couldn't—I couldn't find that on. I mean, maybe if it was posted somewhere on social media, I guess
0: mm-hmm.
2: I could have found it somewhere, but I sure. didn't. And and the timing, right? The synchronicity of it all was just so um difficult difficult for him to say yeah no i'm going to dismiss that as pure coincidence it was just <laughs> right. too much especially cuz he was he thought his dad didn't have a ring and so there's there's you know these these little pieces of evidence that if you are having a medium reading that would some that would be something that you would you would want that person to know you would want those little pieces there are very there are a lot of people out there right now claiming to be mediums. And that doesn't mean that they at some point can't access these things. I can access these, these, this whatever you want to call it, this connection to the other side, to spirit, to spirit guides. I, I don't feel like I'm consistent enough to hang a shingle and say I'm a medium because I believe. That having a medium reading can be an extremely healing part of the grieving process, but it can also be a really damaging part if it's not with the right person.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
2: there are places out there, like the Winberg, Winbridge Institute, uh, I believe they're somewhere on the West Coast, or Forever Family Foundation, that certifies mediums. It's not like a Winbridge is formal. Forever Family Foundation is like it's not like a statistically you know, statistically done process, but they do have a process in place where they certify mediums and some of their mediums that they've certified are some of the best and most well-known in the world right now. And so I think if someone is going and you can go on their website, actually it's forever family foundation and use their list of mediums. And I would really recommend that if people are going to go that route, that they look for someone who is reputable the problem is unfortunately, is that so many mediums, because the good ones are hard to come by, charge astronomical amounts of money and and that can be really cost prohibitive for people as well. Thank you for sharing those resources
1: with our listeners, and we'll definitely put that information in the in the little summary of the the episode so that people can go out and kind of do some research into that um, I'm wondering if you have any insight into take take your own experience for example. Um, you said you you don't you don't you're not consistent enough to you know call yourself a medium. Do you have any insight into why it doesn't work all the time?
2: Um, one, I don't practice, so mm-hmm. I think that's a big piece. And um and and two, you know, I sort of like liken it to someone like Michael Jordan, right? Like Michael Jordan practiced, practiced, practiced but also had inborn skills. Mm-hmm. And I I do believe that we all have inborn talents to open ourselves up to the other side. But just like anything else, like if I'm not practicing it and I don't have as I don't have a strong of a sort of natural tendency to it, uh, then it's, it's a little bit harder for me. And so for me to really, for me to have put myself out there as a practicing medium, I feel like I would have needed to commit to, to the learning and really commit to the practice of honing my skills in that way. And, you know, when I did it for those, that short period of time that I did, I found that I really actually enjoy so much more the therapeutic work of going deep with people, mm-hmm. and that the the combination of the two actually was pretty remarkable to be able to um talk with people about that experience and how to integrate those experiences and how to open themselves up more because I have to say, I've gone to mediums, not a ton. I've gone to mediums that have come and presented. And I still walk away from that thinking, eh, maybe, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. But my experience, my own experience can never be taken from me. My experience of connecting to my aunt, the experiences that I've had actually connecting to other people's loved ones, because a lot of times I'll just get spontaneous information and I'm very clear who it's for. And I'll just call up a friend and be like, hey, I think, you know, so-and-so wanted you to know this, or, you know, and I'm much more comfortable just sharing information in that way without the pressure of needing to produce something. Because I think, again, when people are coming to a medium, they're coming because most of the time they're grieving and they're in pain and they want, they want to believe. And I think to your point, Kate, it's like there are a lot of people out there who take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know that they do it Maliciously, uh, I think there's a lot of people who can probably get 60% right. But to me, 60% isn't quite enough. Yeah. Yeah, I
1: agree. And with the experience that we had, you know, I went in very, very skeptical and very much, very much, I mean, not even just skeptical, just straight up not believing. And It was about, you know, maybe the third thing out of her mouth. I realized that she was, I mean, she didn't even try to, like, make it out of order. It was, I could scroll through my sister's Facebook page, and it was every single post that had anything to do with my mom was was what she was claiming to have visions of. And it was, I mean, it was pretty infuriating, but at the same time, you know i i wanted my sister to have something to kind of hold on to and you know it was really it was it was really um
2: anger inducing watching her put her through that um mm-hmm. yeah and we can really i mean we don't need mediums to do this for us we can cultivate our own connections you just have to start being open to it and and start kind of opening yourself up to the possibility of having that connection and starting to play with it. And, and I mean, I, I know we were going to talk a little bit about my podcast, which ended up being how I decided that I was going to not do the medium work, but still wanted to share these messages in, in the world about what happens when we die. And it's opened up so many people to the possibilities and, and their lives have changed as, as a result of being willing to be more open about connecting to their loved ones. So
1: do you believe that everybody truly has the ability to do this?
2: I do. I do. Interesting. Yes. It doesn't okay. mean it's easy, but it does. Sure. Sure, it does take practice. I mean, you know, Again, I was lucky enough to have a spiritually transformative experience, which I keep talking about. There are lots of other people who have had near-death experiences, past life experiences, past life memories that they've reported. Um, there's there's tons of research on this. This is basically the crux of my podcast, is really bringing in some of the most um, renowned experts in these different fields who have been researching all of these phenomena from a scientific perspective because mm-hmm. there are so many people out there who are skeptical, and I completely understand why they are. And there are scientists doing research on this. And mm-hmm. so, I, I guess, like, how do you discount so many thousands and hundreds of thousands of people's experiences?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good, a good point. And I'm, I'm so happy to know that there is research going into this and that it's not just kind of automatically dismissed like it, like it was for so long. Um, you know, I've always believed in, in, I don't know that I would call them visits. I've had, I've had two experiences that I believe were people who, who had passed on in my life, but you know, there's always this this little thing in your head that goes, "Yeah, but maybe it was something else." And one of those experiences um, still gives me chills when I think about it. Um, and and to be honest with you, it scared the heck out of me. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, Tony, if that was you, please don't ever make <laughs> make noise again. Um, I don't I don't want to see things move. I don't want to hear anything if you're here like if you're if you want to send me messages okay but I don't I don't want to be scared and it Mm -hmm. never happened again and so you know was that him I don't know um but it's one of those things that I I am I am scared that I would be scared if I tried to open myself up to that do you find yourself Mm -hmm. ever fearful
2: no, because I worked with um someone for a really long time to help me mm-hmm. and, and was very clear and I don't think I think about the spirit world not dissimilar to how I think about the physical world, which is I don't really want toxic people in my life mm-hmm. if they're embodied, and I don't want them in my life if they're disembodied. Um, and so I was very, very clear from early on when things in my house started to get a little bit out of control and lights were going crazy and my husband was actually like, what is going on here? And and that was validating in some ways because I'm like, okay, it's not my imagination. I'm not losing my mind. Um, things are really happening and you're seeing them. And, and, and that was really when I was like, okay, I need to understand how to be very clear and set real boundaries around this because I don't want to be in yoga class. And this was happening to me. And like someone's dead brother was talking to me and it's like, okay, well, what do I do with that information? There's not really a whole lot I can do with that except to be annoyed that my yoga class was disrupted. Which sort of I, is the antithesis of yoga, right? Like right. I'm supposed to be there, like being present, and all I'm getting is like, "Hey, can you let my sister know that?" Blah 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 and blah blah blah. Um, do you hear? So once I was,
1: I'm sorry to interrupt you. I I no, no. like millions of questions are rolling around in my mm-hmm. mind. I'm so intrigued by this. Um, do you see people Mm-mm. when they're
2: talking to you? No. Um, it's hard to kind of describe it. It it is. It's it's like I get. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on the clairs, but like clairvoyance, clairsentience, clairaudience, clair, um, cognizance, and clairgustance is taste. So the 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 five senses match up with like the five psychic senses, and I usually just have like what what's called claircognizance is instantaneous knowing that the messages that I get are not of my mind. So they just feel like they're coming in differently than the thoughts that, like, run through our head on the hamster wheel every day. Okay. That's um, sort of like when you maybe have a song that, like, just pops in your head out of nowhere. mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You're Mm -hmm. like, huh, I wonder where that song's coming from. Yeah. Um, it's, it's sort of those experiences or the th- the thoughts don't match up with the other stuff that I'm thinking about throughout the day, right. Yeah. Which is mostly nonsense that I don't need to be thinking about, right. but it's like, oh, why am I suddenly hearing, you know, um, something about, you know, cupcakes and birds. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense. And that's yeah. when I'm like, oh, okay, someone is trying to get through with a message about this. Yeah, and and someone like I guess Teresa Caputo, right? Who's like you know the Long Island medium or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: She's like, kind of walking around all day, or Laurelynn Jackson, who you mentioned, mm-hmm. who's on uh, Surviving Death, the Netflix mm-hmm. series. Yeah, I, I don't know if they're walking around. I mean, Teresa Caputo, I believe, was like would be at the grocery store, and you know she would get spirit. Messages that that is not at all my experience. Okay. I really have to, for the most part, have to be in a place where I am opening myself up to it. It has it it has started happening with patients again, but now my patients know that this is something that because I have a podcast, so mm-hmm. sort of <laughs> can't not know this about me. Yeah. Um and and so when it does, I share the information now.
1: Okay. So when you're in a session with a patient, somebody somebody they've lost just comes to you and, and gives you a message for them. Is that how it works?
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's like very clear to me the difference because I can't I can't use both sides of my brain simultaneously. It feels like I can't do the clinical work until I've delivered the message. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like I'm straddling these two worlds and the message is coming in and I'm trying to think clinically. I know this seems probably really weird to, and I'm trying to describe it the best that I can. But I'm trying to think clinically about like, oh, how can I be supporting this patient in their grief and being empathic and all the things I learned in school and I've been mm-hmm. doing for almost 20 years. And then I'm like, just let her know it's okay about the shoes. Like she doesn't have to be upset about the shoes or I loved the new shoes that they got or whatever it is. Or um, uh, there was something about lucky charms that came through and I was like, <laughs> oh, I, I don't know what this means, but I'm just going to give you the information. I'm hearing something about lucky charms and then that meant something to this person. So it's stuff like that, 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 again like i'm obviously not in my session thinking about lucky charms right mm-hmm. like i'm thinking about you know that must be so difficult or i i understand why you feel that way or mm-hmm. let's like explore that and open that up a little more and then i'm like being banged over the head with this other information
1: yeah has anyone ever asked you to give them a message or um you know ask like can you i don't know what the terminology is but can you channel my person and then the person didn't Mm -hmm. give them a message
0: um that has not ever
2: I, i i think that who comes through is question is sort of not in the control of the medium that's really in the in control of spirit so I've never had that experience but again I I'm not a real practitioner of this work you know Mm -hmm. I do it when I get spontaneous messages when stuff just kind of comes through I did it for a period of time with those my my internship um but I mean I would imagine that if there isn't so anytime that as a medium, you're working in that way. You you want to set the intention that whatever message comes through, it's really for the highest and best self, for the highest and best self of the person who you are with. Mm-hmm. And being really intentional about that. And so, yeah, certainly I would imagine that sometimes messages don't come through and sometimes people don't necessarily hear from the loved one they were hoping to hear from. Mm-hmm.
1: I wonder what that does to the the whole grieving process when you really want to talk to your person and then they don't, they don't either don't show up or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be.
2: Well, and that doesn't mean that no one shows up. And that also doesn't mean that you don't get the messages that you need for that time. And so a a good medium will set that out from the beginning. Like, I can't control who's going to show up here, um, but. You know you can set it. you and I can both set an intention around that, like you can set an intention, you can start asking the person to show up um and asking for what you need.
1: Mhm well, wow. well, I have obviously a million and a half more questions, but I want to be respectful of your time and I want um you to be able to talk a little bit more about your podcast um Tell us a little bit about you know who you're talking to. <clears throat> Tell us the name of it. Um, anything you want people to know about it, because I think you know our listeners. After hearing our our conversation this evening, I think a lot of people will be looking looking out for your podcast.
2: Absolutely, it's called Life, Death, and the Space Between, and it really was birthed out of me feeling like, okay, now what? Like I did this mediumship. I'm a therapist. These these ideas, these concepts, these beliefs actually really do help people in profound ways. But what do I do with this knowledge? And I really wanted to be able to help more people than I can in my office. I I only work part-time, but part-time for me is 20 patients a week. And so how do I ex- expand beyond that? How do I get more people to be curious and I'm not saying that this is this is should be the answer for everyone. I just think that when you're open and you're curious, the world is a miraculous place. And my podcast is really just my own curiosity and exploring everything from the afterlife to consciousness to spiritual awakenings and enlightenments to psychedelics to um, near-death experiences and past life experiences and soul contracts and um, pre-birth visions and precognitions and alternative ways of healing and um, energy healing. And so it, it started really in the space of like really exploring death and has morphed into really life, death, and everything in between because there's so much about consciousness and how powerful our minds are and how – and quantum physics. I've I've recently had a couple of people on talking about quantum physics, which is really the – sort of the science between – or is the link between the science and the spirituality. Mm-hmm. And really trying to make these topics super easy and digestible for people so that it's not like this esoteric um, thinking, but it's really grounded in – In really useful information. And I think when I came out with my story and I started coming out to friends and family, and everybody would sort of look at me and say, Well, if you think this, then maybe there's something to it because I'm so grounded and so skeptical. And so I think I'm really viewed certainly in my family and my community as someone who is very practical. Very logical, very thoughtful, very rational. Um, and here I've had these experiences, and I felt like it was a perfect opportunity for me to really bring these experiences into the world, share people's stories, share people's research, share people's you know practice, so everybody could begin to open themselves up to it, and that it does raise people's consciousness and help them, whether it's in their life because they are sick and need help healing or because they are grieving and need another way to look at that and embrace it and think about it. And again, I just want to go back to something I said earlier, which is that this is not to minimize or undermine the grief process in any Mm -hmm. way. Grief is very real and it needs to be addressed, Mm -hmm. but it is a beautiful adjunct to that. Absolutely, and I I really appreciate
1: you know the skeptic, especially in me, appreciates you know your your education, your background, and that kind of that logical sense about you coming on and, and having these conversations and putting them out there in your own podcast um, and really talking about, you know, some of the science behind it too and interviewing people who have some of that knowledge as well because, you know, it is hard to wrap your mind around and, and just like you said about that grief, it's not to undermine the grief process, but, you know, just like you talked about closer to the beginning, that that anxiety a lot of our anxiety really centers around grief or around death and our own death Mm -hmm. and the death of our loved ones. And, you know, if we can, you know, really drum up, I guess, knowledge and curiosity about the possibility that it's not quite as final as we think it is. um, I, I really believe the world would be a better place. And though I'm, I'm still very skeptical. I, you know, I, I truly hope to have, you know, ex- an experience like this at some point in my life, an experience like you've described. I don't, I don't want to be scared. That's like my only thing. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I certainly encourage our listeners to go out and check out your podcast, Life, Death, and the Space in Between. I know that I will, you know, take it probably in little chunks because it will, it will freak me out. I'm certain of it. But, um, I, I sure appreciate you coming on and having this conversation with me and being willing to kind of open your heart to the fact that, I mean, you knew ahead of time that I was really, really skeptical and mm-hmm. had a had a terrible experience. And so I appreciate you answering my questions. Um, if, if there's one thing that you kind of want to sum this podcast up, uh, that you want to share with our listeners, what would that be?
2: Mm. Be open and curious.
1: Open and curious. I think... I think that is doable, I, you know, people come here for mm-hmm. so many different reasons and I know I found the, this podcast that now I'm I'm co co-podcaster on, and, you know, I found it through my grief mm-hmm. and um, you know, this this talking with somebody who does have your background and your experience I think can certainly be really incredibly helpful for people. So, um Amy, thank you so much for chatting me with, chatting with me tonight. Um, I appreciate you taking Thank the time you, to Kate, do that. This
2: is wonderful. Of yeah, course, absolutely. of course. And if your listeners do start listening to the podcast and want to reach out to me uh, on Instagram and just ask like, hey, what are some good ones to just get started with? I'm always happy to kind of help curate a little bit. There's a lot of episodes. I think I'm like 215 episodes wow. in or something. Okay. So. Uh, So it can be a lot to sift through if you don't know where to get started. So I'm always happy to help in that way as well.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much, Amy.
2: Thank you, Kate. Good night.
0: We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.